Okay, I'm glad you're here. Um, we started a new book of the Torah, uh, Sefer Devarim, and uh, let's let's talk about that because it's a it's a it's a unique book of the of the five books of the Torah, and has a, a different uh, set of um, set of set of rules, if you will, and and it's, it's very deep. And let's uh, let's just um, kind of just begin an exploration of that. Uh, so. So devarim means words. Uh, sometimes people refer to like a, a Torah speech as a devar Torah, a, a speech about Torah. So so devar means words, but devar also means things. A, a, a devar also means thing. So it's very um, instructive uh, that that the word in Hebrew for word also is a thing. And if you think about that, that, that actually um, opens up a lot of vistas about um, interpersonal behavior and also about metaphysics. And so maybe we'll begin with um, interpersonal behavior. Because you see, when s- sometimes people make a mistake and they think that, that if I say something to you that's not nice, that, well, those are just words, right? Um, and yet, we see that the same word for word is the same thing for a thing. That, that if I gave you a, if I physically attacked you, that that's way worse than saying something um, hurtful to you. And that if you actually think about the recovery period, the, recover, the recovery period from a physical injury is actually usually a few weeks or maybe, maybe it's a few months it's, it's not that long. Whereas if you think about something very hurtful that someone has said to you, you can remember that for years and years and years and years, or you may even remember that for your entire life. In fact, believe it or not, there are, um, there are a lot of explanations for why um, under the chuppah, when, when, uh, when uh, a man and woman get married uh, in, in, in Judaism, why you smash the glass at the end of the chuppah. And you'll see like every, every rabbi will give a different explanation of, you know, what it means to break the glass. And there are a lot of like super gorgeous explanations. But there's actually an official explanation, believe it or not. And the official explanation is that um, just like a glass that becomes broken can't be put back together again, so words that leave your mouth can't be put back into your mouth. And so a couple has to understand that, like right at the beginning of a marriage, certain things you have to be very careful about saying or not saying, you know? I once heard, um, I once heard someone say that if you want to tell someone, like really, like Reb Shlomo said, uh, had a phrase that always stayed with me, which is sometimes people have what, they, what he called a truth attack. Which is, you know, I'm going to just tell you the truth, you know. Like, so, so if you feel like a truth attack coming on, right? Think about it five times before you say it, and then don't say it. <laughs> so, you, again, words that that leave the mouth you can't put back into your mouth. And so, the idea that in Hebrew, which we call lashon hakodesh, the holy tongue, that 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 the word for word and thing is the same thing gives us an additional appreciation of the power of words. But let's go deeper. On a metaphysical level, 
we say that God created the entire universe by, with words. With ten sayings, he created the entire world. And of course, that, that has many aspects, that teaching, because certainly God could have said it with just one saying. But there are many teachings on this. Basically, the bottom line is like this, that God said it with ten teachings in order to give more reward for the righteous for this creation that he made with ten teachings. In other words, it's, it's a sign that God, so to speak, put more effort, even though God can do anything you know, in the simplest way. But the fact that he invested himself, so to speak, with ten teachings was to give more reward to the righteous for glorifying a world that ten sayings were put into making. And simultaneously, more punishment for the wicked who are messing up a world that God went out of his way to put ten phrases into making. So that's a, that's a simple thing, but it, it goes deeper. Certainly, the ten phrases correlate with the, with the ten spherot, and, and there, there are many aspects to this teaching. But what we see here, though, is that God s- spoke the world into creation. And, and even deeper than that, Rabbi Shlomo taught that God actually sang the world into creation which I think is a, a very, very beautiful teaching, very resonant teaching, because it shows you that, um, you know, that the world is filled with such beauty that God didn't just speak the world into creation, God sang the world into creation. You know, when my uh, son, when my second son was born, we had the privilege of uh, having uh, Rabbi uh, Shlomo Katz uh, uh, say over his name and, um, at the bris. And my, my son is named um, after, uh, he's a descendant of the Kutzka Rebbe, and he's, he's named Menachem Mendel after the Kutzka Rebbe. And the, the naming, the bris, was actually on the yurt site of the Kutzka Rebbe. Um, so, so actually, Shlomo is a descendant of the Chidush Rim, who is like best friends with the Kutzka Rebbe, you know, which is nice. And, and I, I picked a melody because I wanted, when he said the name, to that, that he should sing the name, that the first time the name would be said, that it would be sung. And then I realized afterwards, after attending other namings, I think it's always sung. <laughs> but I didn't realize that at the time. But anyway, it's a good thing that, it's, that you're singing the name into, uh, into existence. Um, again, it's, 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 it, to me, it's resonant because because this world itself is so filled with beauty. So what's the most beautiful way that you can say something is really to sing it, you know? I found out later that the Tikkuni Zohar says that if you take the first word, Breshis, and you rearrange the letters of Breshis, it spells Shiras Aleph Beis, the letters Aleph and Beis, which means the song of the Aleph Beis. And we know that our tradition is that God created the world with the Hebrew letters. And if you understand each of the letters as energy wavelengths, then you understand the the depth of what that teaching is. That it's really talking like in terms of quantum physics, like these energy wavelengths that God combined to create the world. So again, Breshis, which means in the beginning, or it's the first word of the Torah, is Shiras Olive Bays, the song of the Olive Bays. Again, this idea that God spoke the world into creation, that his words became realities, physical realities. 
And again, getting back to the interpersonal level, when you tell someone an idea, like they say that there's nothing so powerful as an idea whose time has come, because when you communicate an idea, what you do with your words is you create a reality in people's minds and an, an organizational principle for people to look at the world and to understand it in a very deep, clear way. And Torah, of course, is the greatest organizational principle for understanding reality. Because Torah says, and it's in the Sefer Yetzirah, that all of reality can be broken down into three fundamental components, time, space, and soul. And what I love about that so much, olam shana nefesh, ashan is the, is, is the word. In fact, I'll tell you something amazing. When um, I heard this from Rabbi Sutton, when, when the Torah was given, it says that, the, that, that at Mount Sinai, it was filled with smoke. And it uses this word, ashan, ayin shin nun. And the rabbis focus in on that word, ayin shin nun, olam shana nefesh, which means, olam means space, shana means time, nefesh means soul. So when modern science talks about the uh, dimensionality of the world, or the fundamental components of the world, it uses the phrase the time-space continuum. But Judaism is so much deeper. It talks about the fundamental components being time, space, and soul. That you can't understand the fundamental reality of existence unless you factor in the human soul as an essential component of reality. And in fact, Heisenberg talked about the importance of the person observing physical phenomena. So already physics is catching up with the Torah explanation by saying that the observation of reality is part of the reality. So, so there you see an example of, um, of physics catching up with what Torah has been saying for thousands of years already. So again, words have this amazing ability because words are things. Words are things with each other. They can be weapons with each other. They can be openings for understanding new vistas of understanding with each other. And they're creative tools because God himself created the world with words. So now I want to tell you a teaching from the Chidush And it's a, to me, this was like a revelation, you know? So let's just understand for a moment what, what Sefer Devarim is. Uh, the, the, the book of, it's uh, called uh, Deuteronomy in English. You don't hear the word Deuteronomy in, in conversation much. <laughs> Listen, can you pick me up some eggs and some Deuteronomy? And, you know, it's like... Uh, so some salad dressing, you know, you, you never like really hear it ever in conversation. I have no idea what it means. But anyway, in, in Hebrew, we say devarim, right? And it, it means w- the words of Moshe Rabbeinu. Now, first, let's just look at it from a, a time standpoint. This is actually uh, from the Sfasemis, okay? That's the grandson, actually, of the Chedush the Ger Rebbe. So um, the Sfasemis uh, uh, makes a very interesting comment which is that the first four books are given over a period of 40 years. 
And the last book is given over a period of five weeks. Because remember, Devarim is Moshe Rabbeinu's, Moses's farewell address to the Jewish people. And it's called Mishnah Torah. It's a repetition of the Torah. He's summarizing the Torah. And he began it on Rosh Chodesh Shvat, and he finished it Zion Adar. So that's approximately five weeks. So in other words, again, just, just look at it as a, as, um, as a construct right now. The first four books of the Torah are given over a period of 40 years. The last book of the Torah is given over five weeks. Right? It's interesting. Now, I heard Rabbi Shlomo say something one time, and this is like a very, um, this is a very sort of empowering uh, kind of happy teaching, which is that if God blesses you, you're actually able to learn a lot in a very short period of time. That, that's, that's a special blessing that a person can get. But you see, you, you, have, to be, you have to merit it. You have to be worthy of such a, a, a thing. See, because we've got um, good students and bad teachers. <laughs> so you can, be, you can merit it, but the teacher is not going to be able to deliver the goods. Then we've got good teachers and bad students. The, the teacher is giving out the keys, but the students aren't paying any attention, right? Then we've got good teachers and good students. Then when that happens, if a person is ready to hear something and have created a vessel in order to receive, then all of a sudden, one line, one idea can like, pa 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 pa, just open up like realms within their understanding. All of a sudden, one idea becomes like a magnet and all the other teachings stand up and become organized around this central principle. And a person takes a big jump up. This is very possible. So the Svasema says, how is it possible that the first four books are given over a period of 40 years and the last book is given over a period of five weeks? And he says that the Jewish people were right on the border of Eretz Yisrael, of the land of Israel. And it says in the Talmud, in Baba Basra, that the land of Israel makes you smarter. And so, because people were right on the border of Eretz Yisrael with Moshe Rabbeinu still leading them, that basically the sort of like the halo effect, if you will, sort of like the emanations from the land of Israel were picking up people, and it was, it was like, uh, you know, making them wiser and more able to understand what it is that Moshe Rabbeinu was saying. Okay. So now... I want to go back to what I was... Uh, yeah, back to the Chudish Arim. Actually, let me throw in one more teaching because it's the same kind of um, idea that uh, this Fasemis was just saying. And I, I heard this from Reb Shlomo. I asked, I, I asked him the question, and this was the answer he gave me. I, the, the clearest reference in the five books to the Messiah, you, you should know that the prophets are filled with very uh, explicit... Uh, 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 references and teachings about uh, the Jewish Messiah and the Talmud explains everything about it and our rabbis explain who he is and all the, all the laws. For instance, he has to be a descendant of uh, King David. He has to rebuild the base of Migdash. If he doesn't rebuild the Holy Temple in Jerusalem, he's not the Messiah. He can be a great guy, but he's not the Messiah. He has to ingather all the exiles from around the world and bring them back to Israel. So they're very 
there's a very specific checklist of what constitutes the Messiah. And if the person doesn't meet these standards, they might be holy, but they're not the Messiah. It's pretty cut and dry. And the Ramban, actually, in, in one of his debates um, in approximately the 1200s, said something that, that always stays with me. It's a, just like, it's, so, it's such a stunning kind of thing. He said, you know, we talk about the, the world after the Messiah comes as a world of peace and everything like that. And the, the Ramban was forced into a debate, you know, as to the identity of the Messiah. And this is in like the 11, 1200s. And he said to the people there, he says, look around you. Look at this world. God forbid the Messiah's already come. God, you know, this world is so utterly broken. This, this is the world where the Messiah has come already? How can you even think such a thing? And the king of Argon, who was the officiating that debate, who obviously was on behalf of not the, the Jewish side in this debate, said the Ramban won that debate. You know, it was like a, a, a stunning moment in, in religious history. And then he gave him 300 gold coins, which was a king's fortune, and then invited him to leave the country. <laughs> because a guy like that can, you know, let's just put it this way. You don't want him around because he's, he's, he's teaching too clearly. You know, too much light, basically, for that. All right, you don't have to say more. Um, so, so how could it be that the most explicit reference to Mashiach in, in, in the five books comes from Bilaam? Bilaam is the one who's trying to wipe out the Jews. So how is it that he's, bless you, how is it that he's the one who's saying it's the most clearly? So Reb Shlomo said the following. Remember, it says that um, the Talmud teaches that in the end of days, that the non-Jewish world is going to say, if we had a Moses, we also would have gone the distance, basically. And it says that Hashem is going to say back to the nations of the world, I gave you Bilaam. So Bilaam was considered a prophet on the level just about of Moses. Um, but, but here you also see something very, very interesting, which is, so, but Bilaam was a very corrupt individual. I mean, he had a romantic relationship, we know, with his donkey, and, and all, sorts of, uh, all sorts of perversions are, are, are credited to Bilaam. So what does that tell us? Well, that, that tells us something very, very interesting, which is, you see, in Judaism, we celebrate a person's yurtzeit, not their birthday. Great people's birthdays are not celebrated. In, in, in America, we celebrate people's birthdays. In, in Judaism, we celebrate the day they left the world. Why? Because the day they left the world is the day where they fulfilled their potential. You see, for us, it's not about having potential. It's about fulfilling potential. One's birthday connotes the offering, the giving over of potential. The end of one's life celebrates the achievement of actual deeds. And so you see that, on the one hand, Bilaam and Moses are being compared to each other. 
But that's just on the level of potential. You see that someone could have all the potential in the world and not accomplish a, 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 almost any of it. It's very, very tragic. You know? So, 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 so the point is not, oh, you gave us Bilaam? Thanks a lot. <laughs> Thanks a lot. Yeah, you know, that, that was a present? You gave us Bilaam, that guy? But yeah, it was up to Bilaam to become a household world. Who's ever heard of Bilaam unless you study Torah? No one knows who Bilaam is. And yet Bilaam was one of the greatest gifts that the world has received. And, and he, he, he squandered it. Squandered it completely. So it shows you that nothing is a done deal. That, that we have to earn it. We, ha- we have to earn it. We have to earn everything. That, that's the point. And, um, you know, we were talking about it a little bit yesterday. Western, w- w- Western society right now is in such a challenged place, let's say, in a nice way. Because we tend to look at work if you have to work as, as, as something that, um, you know, is a, an insult to one's um, respect and integrity. You know, I, I, I'm, I'm supposed to be the one who doesn't have to work at all. And, 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 and work is, is, in fact, degrading to me. How did we get to that place where the concept of work is considered degrading? So, so, so this goes back, actually, all the way to the Garden of Eden. And, and I, I, I feel like I, I would love to get this message out because it just, it's so central to Jewish thought. And I just never hear it, you know? And I wasn't even taught it. I had to put together like seven different teachings in order to, to arrive at this. But I don't think anyone would dispute this. I think what I'm saying is 100% pshat which is that the Garden of Eden was not the paradise that everyone says that it was. And I heard Reb Shlomo say explicitly, I heard him say it with my own ears, if the Garden of Eden was perfect, what was the snake doing there? The whole idea is, and and we had the mitzvah to work and guard the garden before we ate from the tree of knowledge. In other words, we think of like the Garden of Eden as being this sort of like Kabbalistic spa, right? And it's like, wow, everything was so awesome, and then we blew it, right? That that wasn't it. From the moment we were put into this that realm, we were given two commandments to work and guard the garden. In other words, from the very outset, it was a work session. From the very outset, Creation was a work session. And then we ate from the tree. And then things, as they say, went south, right? And then we get the, the it's a klala, it's you know, translated as a curse, that mankind has to work the fields and by the sweat of his brow make, make bread and everything like this, make a livelihood. But there was a commandment to work before we ate from the tree of knowledge. The idea is we were created Erev Shabbos, right before Shabbos. We were supposed to do our thing, and then we go right into Shabbos. And Shabbos, 
the, the messianic period, right? The olam atikun, the, 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 like the perfected realm, is called Yom Shekulo Shabbos, the day that will be all Shabbos, right? So there you see a perfect confluence that the first Shabbos was supposed to then become the new reality. Everything would be Shabbos from then on. But again, the point that I'm making over here is the fact that you see that before we ate from the tree of knowledge, the snake was there and, and we had the commandment to work. And just as an aside, just very quickly, those two mitzvahs, to work and guard the garden, they say contained all 613 commandments. And that was the first lotase and ase. In other words, do and don't do. Or thou shalt and thou shalt not, if you want to get, you know. Uh, okay. Now, now, now along comes the snake. And we're going to get back to the Chidush but now along comes the snake. And the snake says, see, what's so interesting to me, I just really realized this, we have our work to do, right? We haven't eaten from the tree of knowledge yet. The snake comes along, and he's going to give us a test. Basically, the way the Ramchal understands it, without going into the depths of it, is do we understand that there's only one power in the world? Right? That's, that's, that's the test, basically. It was a hard test. For a lot of reasons, it was a hard test. But, but the snake is giving us this test, and what are we supposed to do? We're supposed to say no to the test, right? We're supposed to not listen to the snake, and then if we don't listen to the snake, what happens? then we go into Shabbos and that's the end of history. We then advance, we then evolve into the next stage of creation, right? So isn't it interesting that the word Nachash is Gematria 358, which is the Gematria of Mashiach? <laughs> In other words, we, we tend to think of that snake as, first of all, God forbid you should think of it as an independent power, even though they perceived it at that moment as perhaps it's an independent power, that's, that was part of the test, right? But that snake was actually like Mashiach energy, which just had to be sublimated. We just had to treat it in the right way and to elevate it and refine it by saying no to it. And then that energy would have turned around and become Mashiach. To me, that's a fascinating correlation and a very instructive way of understanding what that energy was and what the purpose of that energy was. Okay, so now let's finish up with Bilam. What Reb Shlomo said was that, um, that basically, how is it that Bilam was prophesying the Mashiach at that moment? Because the Jewish people led by Moshe Rabbeinu were right on the border of Israel. Now remember, if the Jewish people were led into the land of Israel with Moshe as their head. He would have built the base of Migdash, and that would have been the end of history right there. But Moshe didn't lead them in, right? But what Bilaam was tapping into was this idea that the Jewish people were right on the border of Israel with Moshe Rabbeinu still as their leader. So there was so much Mashiachic energy at that moment and that's what he was tapping into, and that's how he was able to bring down these prophecies in a very clear way about Mashiach.
That's how Bilam was able to do it. That's, so again, that's sort of getting into this idea what the Sfas Emes was saying, that the first four books were given over a 40-year period of time. The last book was given over a five-week period of time. Why? Because we were on this elevated level, because we were right on the border of Israel, and Israel makes you smarter, right? So they're, they're, they're related teachings. But now let me tell you what the Chidush Rim says. He says that, um, you, know, you know, to understand this, we just have to just have one bit of extra background about the, the nature of Sefer Devar. So Moshe Rabbeinu said it over, we just said a five-week period. He started Rosh Chodesh Shvat and finished Zion Adar. Okay? So, so maybe you're thinking, well, wait a second. So the four books of Torah from Hashem and the fifth book of Torah is just said by Moshe. But, but, um, but it's more than that. Because the fifth book of Torah has the same status as the first four books of Torah. So how does that work exactly? Because after Moshe Rabbeinu said it, Hashem commanded him to write it down. So in this way, they are, the words originate from Moshe, but when Hashem says, now write it down, then they become the words of God. And so as such, the book of Devarim has the same status as the first four books of the Torah. Now, now listen to this. Moshe Rabbeinu was able, by putting it into his words, even though they were later to become officially stamped and become God's words, right? Moshe Rabbeinu was able to communicate the Torah in 70 languages, it says. Now, the Chidush Arim explains, what does that mean? What's the, what's the simple way of understanding 70 languages? All right? So, so it's very deep. He says, it's not talking about Swahili and Chinese and right? All these different languages that we know today. It's deeper than that. When Moshe said it in 70 languages, the Chidush Arim explains that he phrased the Torah in a way that every person at every period in their life, in every country, in every period of human history, would be able to understand it. Do you hear that? The Torah was communicated in a way where it would be understood by all peoples at every time, everywhere. That's, that's, that's a very deep, amazing shot. And of course, what book throughout human history has endured more than any other book beyond, 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 right? Is the Torah because it really was communicated in 70 languages. It really was. Now, the Chidush Arim points out something that this really just amazed me, that the phrase, with all of your heart and with all of your soul, those words were said by Moshe. Though that phrase, doesn't appear in the first four books of the Torah. And if you think about it, what, when I read those words in the Torah, with all of your heart and with all of your soul, I'm just completely galvanized. 
am completely galvanized. You know the Shema Yisrael, Hashem Elokeinu, Hashem Echad? Moshe Rabbeinu. That's, that's, we're going to read it in, in, in this coming Shabbos. Parshas V'yas Chanan. Sefer Devarim. Shema Yisrael, Hashem Elokeinu, Hashem Echad. The, 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 the oneness of God. That, that phrase is, is from Moshe's mouth. Amazing. 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 You know, the, the Medrash teaches that, it, that Yaakov Avinu said it to his children around his deathbed. Maybe it started there. But in terms of its position in the Torah, it's said by Moshe. Now, this I have to look into a little bit more. Uh, uh, I have to research the following thought, but I'll just raise it as a possibility right now, and then we'll have to confirm whether or not it's, it's accurate. I wonder, this idea, Hashem Echad, using the word Echad, which means one, right? Whether God is described as one, as Echad, in the first four books, or not. I, I, I can't, off the top of my head, think of an example where Hashem is called Echad. It could be, by the way. It could be that it, that it exists. But I, I don't know. Certainly, we, the existence of God is very clear from the first four books. Certainly, we're told not to worship other gods repeatedly in the first four books. That's very clear. But I'm talking about this exact use of this one word, Echad, and the reason why that's so meaningful to me is because, you know, to understand that it, it's all one, that everything is one, to use that word, that communicates to the human intelligence in such a clear, direct way. Again, when you talk about organizational principles, the idea, just the oneness, that is far out. Because otherwise, if I, if I don't hear that word one, Everything, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of getting it. I know what I'm supposed to do. I know what I'm not supposed to do. But in terms of the clarity of a vision, the word echad, I think, is, is, is stunning. It's stunning, you know? Again, Sefer Devarim, but let's, let's confirm that first. But, but nonetheless, certainly, certainly the Shema, certainly the Shema is in Sefer Devarim. Now, I want to... Um, I want to transition and talk about another aspect of the, the structural, the structural um, <clears throat> integrity of Sefer Devarim, because I think it's, um, again, something very, very fascinating. We know that Sefer Devarim, the last book of the Torah, which Moshe is saying over, and then God is telling him to write down, that Sefer Devarim is called Mishnah Torah, which means a repetition of the Torah. Moshe Rabbeinu is summarizing the Torah in a way he's bringing it down to this level where we, can, where we can understand it and embrace it in a clearer, more concrete way. And yet, fascinatingly, the rabbis point out that there are new mitzvahs that haven't appeared in the, re- in, in the first four books that are appearing for the first time in Sefer Devarim. So the Ramban addresses that, and he says... Don't think that, that Moshe didn't have these mitzvahs already. He had already been given these mitzvahs at Mount Sinai. Just happens to be that this is where they're communicated. That's all. 
So there's, no, there's nothing new that's being said. You know, it's all from God, and it was all given earlier. However, in terms of presentation, we have to look into this more deeply. The fact is, is that on the one hand, Sefer Devarim is being called, the book of, right, of, of Devarim, the book of Deuteronomy, is being called a repetition of the Torah, and yet there's new mitzvahs in it, mitzvahs we haven't gotten until now. Okay, granted, we, we had already received them, but they're not presented till now. So I want to say the following. It's my thought, but, but you see, anyone who actually wants to learn Torah in a serious way knows the absolute um, essential nature of what we call chazorah. Chazorah means to go over the teachings. You have to go over the teachings in your mind. And when you walk down the street, you should be going over the teachings. When you, when you lie in bed, before you go to bed, when you've got your head on your pillow, you should go over these teachings in your mind, or whatever teachings you want to go over. And by the way, it's a, it's a wonderful way to fall asleep. <laughs> um, because uh, the Yetzirah, the, the evil inclination, really tries to stop a person from going to sleep. Like you lie down on your bed and all of a sudden like the worries of life all of a sudden come and they keep a person awake, right? And I heard this told as like half a joke, half serious, but it is serious, which is that if while you're lying on your bed and you can't go to sleep, if you go over Torah teachings, the Yetzirah says, you know what, if they're going to learn Torah already, I might as well let them go to sleep. <laughs> and you'll see, you'll see, it's humorous, but it's also true. It's also true. And it may take you a little while, but then you get like fantastic merit of going over teachings, and then it becomes more clear. So it's a win-win. In every version, it's a win-win. You have to have it stick in your head, you know? So, so, so but now you see something actually wondrous about the process of doing chazorah, of going over teachings. Because you see, Sefer Devarim is a review of the Torah and yet there are new things in it. Because when you go over things, you discover what's always been there for the first time. You discover new things when you look at something a second time. And this is one of the aspects of the infinity of the Torah, that no matter how many times you go over it, you'll constantly see new things. Constantly. You'll never not see new things. You know, one of the things that's sort of like um, to the point of absurdity, I wish I could give you examples, but I can't, is that, is that if you look at, like, say, this year's PhD thesis on Shakespeare, they're so... They're, they're comically abstract because people have run out of things to say about Shakespeare. And if you want to get your PhD in Shakespeare, you have to come with a new thesis. You have to make a contribution to the literature. There's nothing more to say about Shakespeare. I'm sure there is. But at that level of getting a PhD in, in, in Shakespeare, you know, I, I'll try one of these days, I'll try to go over some of, the, some of the theses that are being written. And you'll just hear the titles of them. And you'll like scratch your head and go, Really? You know? One of the um, 
one of the stories, there's a great story. Um, her name is Tova, and the, the, the title has the word fire in it. That's the best I can do right now. Anyway, she has an amazing story, one of the greatest stories I ever heard about coming close to Judaism. She, she herself, uh, I mean, it's like a thriller. It's incredible. She was Jewish, but she was, for whatever reason, she was raised in a Christian setting, and then she went into this like very harsh uh, monastery-type situation, and she became like a, uh, like a, a minister in this, in, this, in this Christian branch, and they were like really super like not into materiality. She said that they would serve actually rotten food. So like, you know, people shouldn't get attached to food and all sorts of stuff. And, and then she finds out later on that, that, she, that she's Jewish and, that, and, and, and her uncle really saves her and she, she becomes a, you know, a, a Torah Jew and is able to leave that setting. But one of the details that just always stays with me is that she had to give a, a, a sermon to her, uh, to her group. And she stood in front of her books, right, uh, about the religion she was involved in, and she said, she said, I already know all of this stuff. There's nothing new here. And she then thought, there must be something wrong with this if there's nothing more to learn. It was like a real turning point for her. And, you know, you, you, you see that Sefer Devarim is standing as a, this monument of the opposite of that. The idea that, that it's a repetition, and yet contained in that repetition are brand new things. Because you'll never run out of things to say about the Torah. Because the Torah is not a book. It's the fabric of reality itself. It's not a book. Okay, stop here. <laughs>